Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. We've taken a bit of a break and we are back with what promises to be a great episode this time round. Um, I'm joined by my pal Pete Cooper. Pete is a naturalist, a writer and an ecologist working at Derek Gow Consultancy in Devon. And um, we've worked together on a little reintroduction project in Ealing, which we'll get to. But Pete does a lot of work with UK species reintroduction. So Pete, welcome. And um, I'm really excited to talk to you about rewilding and your work oh thank you very much no it's a pleasure to finally get the podcast uh, sorted out and yeah um really yeah. Glad to be here. it's taken a while hasn't it sorry about that. <laughs> that's all right we've all been very busy yeah cool so we'll talk about your kind of background and your work and everything but just before you came on you were a little late because you were making glow worm porridge tell us about that Yes, yeah, it's my first time uh, brewing glowworm porridge, and I hasten to add that's not porridge made out of glowworms. I was worried for a second. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's exactly. It's uh, the porridge to have it a rave. Basically, it sticks out in the dark. <laughs> but now this is porridge for glowworms to eat, and it's quite common in captivity when you do have species with quite specialised, difficult diets to sort of come up with these sort of liquidified forms. I mean, a classic example is uh, anteaters. It's very difficult to find a lot of ants for such a big animal if it's living in a zoo. So there's actually a a porridge recipe of, I think it's a mix of oats and dog meat and all sorts of things, but it's got the exact same nutritional value as ants and anties do really well on it. When it comes to glowworms, they are a a feeder of mollusks, so snails and slugs. Yeah, Uh, Because the slugs can actually eat the glowworms when they're molting and they're just very messy. Uh, They've got a shell and it's harder for glowworms to keep on top of them. Just been using snails the past couple of years, which is great. But snails, as you may know, are not particularly fecundant during uh, the winter. They don't particularly have many eggs then. It's certainly hard to keep that food supply going. Um, so I've been speaking to a researcher in Antwerp who's studying the effects of light pollution on glowworms. She's also keeping some herself. And she has got a recipe, which itself was made by a private breeder over here in the UK, which involves making a lovely sort of porridgey mix, which you can basically freeze, bring back for your glowworms whenever you like, whenever they feel like it's time for a dinner. And this consists of some crushed uh, escargot snails. I've already got my little snail farm. Um, I've been crushing snails with glowworms for two years now, so we're quite used to it, as, as sad as it is. It becomes quite an automatic process now. Removing the shells, popping in some cat food, which really stinks, and then adding some liquefied protein jelly uh, of the kind you can actually get for fruit beetles to eat. Right. And then mixing that all together, and it creates a real foul-smelling but lovely liquefied soupy porridge for the glowworms. So I've just made it, just prepared it. I'll give it to them, I'll dish it out after this podcast and see what they think. Um, but if they like it, then uh, I've got quite a lot to keep back from the freezer. All right. And so do you just give it to them in like little dish or what? Just little dollops on the sponge cloth. So in the glowworm pen, which is literally just a takeaway tub, it's a great excuse to get Chinese. <laughs> I have little fr- torn up fragments of sponge cloth entirely made out of cellulose. So there's no... Um, non-natural chemicals which potentially cause them harm and that's mainly to keep it nice and humid the younger larvae especially can desiccate really easily uh, yeah. but also is a really nice absorbent place for them to gather and uh, eat their dinner too okay and it's, it's all these amazing things which 
I didn't have a clue about when I started out doing this project. And it's only through people doing trial and error in their own time, you know, coming up with these remarkable solutions, uh, which will make a species which one day has seen as really difficult, no point bothering with, can't keep it alive. So actually, if you put the work in, no, it's eminently doable, it's eminently keepable, and we can scale this up for conservation uh, release, which is what we're trying to do. Brilliant. All right. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about the Glowworm Project in a sec, but just um, for listeners, what is your kind of background? What's your um, training and how did you get into UK species reintroductions? Yeah, so my background, I guess, is like you and so many others who've been interested in nature or work in conservation, and that's just being mad as a nut about the wildlife um, since my earliest days. My first words were trees, followed by bracken and gorse, although that was about as botanical as it got, really. I quickly sort of switched to zoology, yeah. and I didn't even refer to my family. and came, came with quite a big family, the youngest of five boys, by their own names. I called them animal names. So mum was crocodile, dad was parrot. My oldest brother was called Jeff. His animal name was giraffe, but his <laughs> girlfriend was quite pleased to be called snow leopard, and so on, basically. So animals and nature is basically how I sort of viewed the world, conceptualized everything. You know, to me, there was home, but the real homes were the woods on the other side of the garden gate and the local zoo, which was Marwell, uh, growing up in, over in Hampshire. Right. Um, so, yeah, I was just sort of stuck with nature from the start. Uh, I remember the very first thing I wanted to be when I was older was apparently director of Marwell Zoo. And whereas the exact sort of role changed, I always wanted to work in nature and conservation bar a brief phase when I was 13 where I wanted to play Doctor Who but apart from that just could still happen Pete could still happen well that's it if it doesn't work out you know they still need a ginger doctor he always wanted to be ginger so there we go so I always was you know dedicated to wanting to work in wildlife conservation but in terms of UK species reintroductions I think what really struck a bell was when I was about maybe four or five and it was going to another local zoo and it's part of the reason that you know having worked in zoos as well I think they are incredibly important as an educational resource and an engagement point of view um, when you're at an impressionable age like that. But it was a zoo that specialised in native species. In fact, one that we've both worked with, the New Forest Wildlife Park, where oh, yeah. we got Harvest Master on for your release uh, and where I later volunteered as a teenager. And it was actually just after the old owner had left. And the old owner, or old manager at least, is my current boss, Derek Gow. So it was very sort of strange sort of collation of fates i guess yeah um but it was going there when i was about five years old and they had all these native species which you know i dreamed of seeing in the woods behind my garden gate things like badgers and foxes but never could see but there i saw them in the flesh for the first time but on top of that they had lynx and wild boar and then when i realized i was told that these species were once here it was like a fairy tale coming to life it was just a real magical moment and it was like wow this is what we're missing mm. And that just sort of stayed in my mind that, you know, we are deprived of a wilder world. And it was always something which didn't quite sit right with me when I was sort of learning about overseas conservation, these big wilderness areas. And then I remember getting to A-levels and I was so glad when I got to A-levels because I had a massive confidence drop when I was a teenager. Because I was into nature, basically, it wasn't a cool thing to do. And when you're that age, you will hide a lot of things about yourself. And yes, yeah. finally, I was somewhere where I felt more free and able to be myself. And they had a whole entire course in environmental science, which had conservation in it. Great, fantastic. But one of the things that's mentioned in the textbook was how in the UK, it's all about managed habitats. And it just said, this is the way, basically, you know, it's rainforest over there. But over here, it's all about coppice woodland and heathland and, and even grouse moors, it said in the textbook, were important wildlife habitats. And I sort of like, you know, went along with it, but it also was like, why is it the way? why yeah and then of course when feral came out about two or three years later it was like this this is what's been on my mind for so long this is what you know needs to George Monbiot's book yeah George Monbiot's feral yeah exactly and you know I'd like it was for the conservation world as a whole 
it was a, a reawakening to how we look at British wildlife, basically. So yeah, I, I basically wanted to go into uh, working in captive breeding and reintroduction, having had that background both within zoos, but also native species in the woodlands behind the house, and re- reading Gerald Durrell as well as a teenager, who's an you know, absolute role model. Um, but then the rewilding movement just really kickstarted and straightened that course. So I was very lucky uh, going to uni over in Cornwall that Derek Gow's reintroduction breeding facility wasn't too far away. I mean, it's still about now a bit drives from the uni, but you know I didn't really see that as a barrier. And I had a mutual friend of Derek's, a uh, chap called Martin Noble, who's the ex-Forest um, Commission keeper of the New Forest. Um, right. He's an absolutely wonderful guy. Um, if you've ever met him, he's he's a bit like Santa Claus cross of Gandalf, you know, this sort of wise man of the forest. <laughs> Um, and he used to go around his cottage where he has things like pine martins and reptiles he breeds and, you know, hear all his stories. And he used to work with Derek when he was based in the forest himself. So, you know, he gave me a lead and went to see Derek, saw his place, met him and was like, this is exactly what I want to do. Um, so basically volunteered there while I was at uni. I actually had to have my friends on master's course really pester me to pester Derek to get a job because I was a bit too humble about it I thought like I can't just ask for work and they were like Pete just bloody ask for work <laughs> yeah and I'm glad I did because yeah about um six months after master's course some opportunity to do some research into some potential uh reintroduction projects came up yeah um, and I got involved with the harvest mouse work there or basically expanded that ended up taking on the glowworm breeding as well um and that was part-time but I've gone full-time since April 2021 you know we're really growing as a as an organization you know we've initially quite a small consultancy trying to develop a charity to keep it wild trust which is currently cic but we're you know in transition to turn it into a charity to enable us to do a lot more conservation rewilding projects both on site and enable others to do so elsewhere so it's quite an exciting time to be involved great yeah yeah we've had derek on the podcast before um back yes. in I think, season two or something and he's uh you know a great character and um a contentious character for some in the conservation world. Yeah, oh, definitely. I tend to find when I tell people I work for Derek, you either get people who go, oh, brilliant, he's such a doer, <laughs> we need that kind of maverick. And then others yeah. go, oh, he's a maverick. Oh, yes. Mm, and you sort of see them recoil slightly and sort of bite yeah. their lip. So it's an interesting place to be. But I think the key thing is that, you know, conservation and, and rewarding and all the rest of it, it is just like um, ecology in its own right. It is a tangled bank, as Charles Darwin called it, of different niches and all the rest of it. Yeah. You know, just as you need, you know, some maverick visionaries in it, you also need the scientific application, you need the practical application. So what I'm hoping to do is, you know, bring some of that scientific application um, to the kind of vision that Derek wants to create, basically. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've been quite taken aback by your Derek Gow impression at times. You know, at the end of the day, you just got to do it. (laughs) <laughs> it's like uncanny it's basically like having Derek in the room that, thanks for doing that <laughs> so come here tell me this why is rewilding such a contentious topic and why is there so much seemingly so much kind of infighting between traditional conservationists and e- the ecologist community and rewilding has almost come around and, and kind of seen as a, almost a dirty word now to some people and yeah Absolutely. Why, I mean, it's a huge topic, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting one rewilding. You could do a probably a whole master's, if not a whole PhD, just on the social semantics of the term. It's a word which has been around literally since the 90s from the American wilderness movement. Dave Foreman sort of first coined it. And then the scientists, Michael Suve and Reed Noss, then gave it a full definition of being about wild cores, corridors between those wild cores um, and carnivores like wolves, 
providing that trophic regulation, that top-down uh, effect on prey. Uh, and that became the free Caesar rewilding. But again, that was very much relevant to the American wilderness movement. So it was just seen as a far away thing to most, far a few uh, UK conservationists. So I think there's partly the legacy of that. And I do sympathise with you know, some of the original rewilders, if you like, you know, who do just sort of feel in terms of bastardised a bit by people who are just using it to apply to their garden lawns uh, or to projects which are really heavily reliant on domestic livestock or that kind of thing. So I think the, the definition of the term is, is in whole one of the reasons for a lot of the infighting, more so amongst the conservationists between ecologists rather than between us and everyone else, if you like. I mean, the IUCN have sort of come up with a definition for it, but even that's quite long-winded. And I just tend to um, stick to what my mate Alistair Cameron, who runs a Somerset Wildlands uh, charity, sees rewilding, which is less of a definition and more of a philosophy in the same sense that you can't really define punk you know, if you ask any person, they might have a different definition of what punk is. Yeah. Or you can definitely say what the philosophy of, of punk or any other sort of musical subgenre or subculture has been. Right. And I think that's a bit of rewarding as well. It's about a philosophy. And that philosophy is one of letting nature take the lead. It isn't target-led. And I think that's where there's a lot of conflict between amongst ecologists. I think particularly, you know, when there's this world and this, this institution in the UK which is very management heavy because effectively we've been having managed habitats for about 3,000 years since the Neolithic when we cut down all the woodlands and then from the scale of wetlands, you know, since about the 16th century when we drained the fens and we lost our sort of massive Danube Delta, Okavango style wetlands too. You know, everything has basically become wildlife finding a place within a human landscape. And what we think of a lot of traditional conservation work and traditionally rare species a lot of that is basically being trying to conserve things that do well in low-intensity agriculture. The equivalent overseas, if you like, would be trying to best preserve uh, the species that do well in palm oil plantations, which I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are many species of insects, for example, that do well in the cattle ranches in the Amazon now. But, you know, we did all that thousands and thousands of years ago that our memory can't quite get a grasp of how to sort of do something different with it. And admittedly, there is definitely a place for traditional conservation or TradCon, as I shorten it to, I'm not saying we should replace it all rewilding because at the end of the day, we do have a very busy landscape and we do need land sharing. And we do have a lot of these rare species on the edge of extinction. There probably isn't room for a lot of wide-scale experimentation rewilding for some of these things. What has worked for them in the past just needs to continue. But rather than replacing traditional conservation or tradcon, which has been happening only really for the last 70 years or so, it's now about saying, right, we've done that. We've sort of arrested development of some of our last bastions of biodiversity before they went now we need to restore more and that restoration you know it should be focused on habitats that are currently species poor you know we're not going to lose important species that's where you want to you know get rewilding gains i mean that's you know, exactly why nep's done so well because it was originally just relatively species poor farmland beforehand so it's not about replacing one with the other and i still think amongst a lot of conservation ecologists there is this feeling that rewilding is just there to get rid of what's been done before or undo what's been done before. And when you're um, a senior manager or, or a CEO or whatever of an organization that's been doing these kind of things, but has also been facing a lot of things like the State Nature Report telling you how badly wildlife is still declining, and you get people saying that, oh, conservation has failed, we need rewilding now, you can understand why from a social point of view, you know, that can hurt. But the important thing is, you know, we, we did still need that work. Like, you know, if you go to the Somerset levels, they would be absolutely dead for wildlife were it not for the work that was done by the RSPB and Natural England and the Wildlife Trusts, um, securing some of these old peat diggings and turning them into places, uh, the Avalon Marshes, you know, Hamwall and the Shatwick Heath, what have you, which are just 
brimming of wildlife and where you've got all these um, heron species returning in their wake. And it is very much Tradcon, you know, they're doing controlled grazing and managing water levels and reed cutting and all the rest of it. Yeah. But that is supplying the area with wildlife. So we, it undoubtedly has made a difference, but we need to do more because, yes, wildlife is still declining at an astonishing rate. We are still 25th from the bottom or, or I think 29th from the bottom of the world's most nature-deprived countries. So we do need to look at that differently. And I mean, you know, I was doing... um or, or co-running a rewilding and regen agriculture course over at work with my colleague Nick, who was basically the regen farmer, if I'm the, the rewilder, where we had staff from uh, Natural England, uh, from the National Trust, and even Waitrose's very first ecologist. They've got they've employed an ecologist for their farm really? in Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, to just sort of you know ensure the way they're farming for their stores is as wildlife friendly as possible. That's great. Uh, which is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and it just shows how far this kind of thing has come now. But they were there saying, you know, I look back at all the times I was told to uh, think that birch was the enemy, that bramble was the enemy, that blackthorn was the enemy because it was scrub. Scrub, the dreaded scrub. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I just think how much wildlife potential they wasted away for the sake of one or two species. So, yeah, there are a lot more people coming aboard of it. Now they can see uh, the returns you actually get from wilding. You know, rewilding in Britain culturally, uh, certainly in the conservation culture, has kind of had two watersheds. There's obviously the publication of feral, which opened up as a concept, but it still kind of made people think it's just something for the uplands. And with all the, the social difficulties that causes with upland communities and all the rest of it. But then when Wilding came out in 2018, Isabella Tree's book, you know, that made the point that this could be done in lowland landscapes, you know, in traditional farmland, and it could work. You know, there's a practical demonstration of it. Um, and I think that's why you've suddenly seen the conservation NGOs get behind it now as well. Yeah. So I think that's you know the big side of it has been the sense of the unknown, and there's been a sense of it replacing something which may not have done the best for wildlife based on the current declines, but is still we definitely needed it because it would be a lot worse about it. Um, yeah. But then with a more general population, just coming back to the point Ruthie made about upland communities. There is that sense that, you know, it's there to be the next Highland Clearances, that it's there to push people off the land. And the way that it's portrayed in media can have a big impact on that. You know, there's a lot of talk about the, you know, these rewilding millionaires, a sort of little club which goes around pushing people off the land, which isn't the case at all. Or even that millionaires in general support rewilding. Well, actually, the reason people emphasize that is because actually it's very few millionaires who do. The vast majority of rich people are still far more willing to put their money into oil and other unsustainable things. This is the fact that there is a small body who are sort of funding uh, more of this kind of thing. And, yeah, the way landowner ownership does come into it can play a part too. And that's one thing I will say, that the big landowner model of rewilding, you know, which has you know, really paid dividends because that's basically the way land works in this country, you know, has brought in some big rewilding areas, but there, there are significant limitations to it. And I think the main ones are the fact that there isn't really longevity to it unless it um, is under uh, government or trust ownership um, because there's nothing stopping the air from getting rid of the rewilding if they don't like yeah. it. And it does you know, further create this idea of nature for the rich and powerful. And the one thing you don't want is to get into a fortress model of conservation like you've seen in Kenya, basically. It should be something accessible to all. It should be something that you know people have the right to get behind. And really, my idea would be for the government to be owning big state and areas of land like you see in Germany, like you see in New Zealand, in America. But unfortunately, with nearly 2,000 years of feudal land ownership in the UK, it's very difficult to make that change. So the one for me should be focusing on more is definitely you know more community-bought areas of wilding. Uh, that's exactly what Alice is trying to do at Somerset Wildlands. You start to see that with the Lango Moor community buyout. Much more of that, please. 
but that's not to say that we do need the big landowner models because with nature, we can't wait around for uh, land reform or political reform. We've got to act now. There's many caveats. I mean, there's as many, as many feathers to the hat as possible, basically, is what we need. Yeah, yeah. And I think when a lot of people hear about rewilding or think about rewilding, they do jump immediately to the kind of like big, showy, apex predator reintroduction yes, kind of things and get afraid of... A, being displaced from the land, especially the farming community, mm. but B, then, you know, worried about their livelihoods because they don't want predators back in the landscape. We've been we've been very far removed from predators in the landscape in the UK and Ireland, haven't we, for, for hundreds of years? Absolutely. And that's always the most difficult thing is when you've had that distance from it, because then suddenly the prospect of it coming back is all scarier um, and the heel just digs tighter into the ground. If you go to Europe, you'll see the all the big social problems uh, on the whole with things like wolves and bears are where they're just coming back for the first time because there isn't that cultural baseline of them um, or the, the cultural baseline that is there is one of fairy stories long ago. But in Romania, bears have been a part of life for, forever, basically, and people accept it. Uh, you might get the occasional cattle or sheep kill. And a very, very occasionally people die from bears, bear attacks. That's a part of life. Whereas where wolves are coming back into you know, very uh, developed parts of Europe, uh, like Netherlands, France, Belgium, yeah. there is a lot of resistance. You know, there is a lot of uh, coexistence work being put in because, of course, they are a European protected species. And I've just seen some great educational films in the Netherlands about, you know, what to do if you encounter a wolf on a hike. Uh, but the whole message of the video is one of positivity of coexistence, you know, how great it is to have a animal back. But equally, you know, you'll have farmers who uh, drive their sheep in front of the government office in Paris and protest um, of the wolves that are coming back. Pictures of uh, dead wolves hung to signs in Tuscany with no more wolves painted in red next to it. Right. You know, it, it's when people say people are living in Europe with large carnivals again, just fine. It's not all that rosy. You know, there are still some big um, social issues to come over. Um, yeah. The only reason why it's not happening here is because the English Channel, they can't get there on their own. So if you wanted wolves back, which, to be honest, if we're going to make any real indent on having a complete ecosystem, you know, from a completely scientific point of view, that is what you need. You know, we were going around some rewilding sites in the north of England last year, and all of them that were trying to plant trees or encourage natural regeneration were saying the same thing. So, you know, you try your best, but then there's about seven or 14 red deer in the area who just come and eat it all up as soon as it's getting going again. Uh, yeah. But they won't move because they know where the food is and there's nothing that's keeping them on the move. And that's what the absence of the wolf has done. It's not about directly taking numbers down. It's about keeping things on the move. It's about scaring things shitless uh, yeah. and getting to go somewhere else. There's a great anecdote by uh, Patrick Laurie, um, who wrote an amazing piece of nature right on this blog a couple of years ago when he went to Villavigia Forest, uh, where he's out of a guide and they've seen dead trees, uh, which have all these young saplings growing around uh, the deadwood. And that's because the deer now know that if they are to browse near these dead uh, trees, fallen trees, uh, if a wolf pops out, when they go to run, they just trip over some dead wood and they're dinner straight away. Right. So they avoid the dead wood and that allows young trees to grow back in their stead. That's amazing, isn't it? It's all these little things that we just didn't know until you let nature do its own thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the wolf isn't a silver bullet to bring all our nature back. It's very important in ecology not to think anything is a silver bullet. But it is a crucial component. And the thing is, if, but if you want to bring wolves back, ecologically, you, know, you could bring them back tomorrow if humans are out of the picture, because we know they do absolutely fine in modified landscapes. Um, all they need is some food and a little bit of cover. You know, they, they don't necessarily need vast tracts of woodland. Um, mm -hmm. It's ideal because it means they get some recovery from persecution. 
but they can live in the human landscape, which brings us on to the point of why it's difficult. It's humans. It's us. It's our social ability to accept them. And wolves would require a national reintroduction conservation project. You wouldn't be able to do a local one um, in the Scottish Highlands, for example, because you know one out of 10 young wolves, when they disperse, they just go kablamo. Um, it's why you find wolves that have been collared in Italy recovered in Spain, for example. Yeah. So they might be in Cornwall in a few months. A huge distance. So it yeah. needs to be a national project. And you need to be talking about bringing back shepherding, bringing back livestock corrals, all this kind of thing. It would be a, a massive, massive undertaking. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of tears, basically. Yeah, yeah. But equally, what right do we have to tell developing countries that you must conserve your lovely lions, tigers and elephants, uh, which can eat your grandma and destroy sugarcane in one night, if we can't, you know, restore a large predator, which Europe are now seen in every country with all our resources at proposal? You know, how, why can we not even do that? And I don't know if you saw the news story recently, about this um, uh, cougar which lived under the Hollywood sign. I can't remember which particular ID. Yeah, P22. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, and it's just an incredible story where, you know, it had to be um, euthanized because it was in poor health. And just the local community were just an outpouring of grief. Uh, yeah, this, they were so yeah. fond of this animal, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. This thing that lived on their doorstep. They were just absolutely, you know, mortified by it. And it does a show that you can live alongside these dangerous animals in built-up landscapes. And puma is technically more dangerous to people than wolves are. Yeah. So that was a really, really telling piece. And I actually found it really quite powerful. And yeah, why should we struggle so much with the contact of a lynx if that's a reaction to pumas uh, over in the States? Yeah, well, I was just going to come on to lynx because we also had David Hetherington on. Um, oh, great guy. Yeah, he's got he's a very really... good collection of Ice Age mammal bones. Really? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. That didn't come a really minor skeleton when you got into a state of him. Oh, cool. Very good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you think that, um, okay, two questions, I suppose. Do you think that lynx reintroduction is more likely than wolf reintroduction? Do you think wolf or lynx reintroduction will happen? And in what time scale? I definitely think the lynx reintroduction is more likely than wolf. Yeah. I can't put any time scales on it, but purely again from the social point of view. Because from an ecological point of view, as I mentioned, you know, wolves are technically easier to do than lynx. Uh, lynx do require, sorry, some quite big tracts of land. Uh, I mean, you know, Dave Everton probably talked about it all in his podcast, but, you mm. know, his PhD, they worked out you have 400 lynx in the Scottish Highlands and a further, I think it's about 150 uh, in the Southern Uplands. You know, they know the habitats, they know the foods, they're absolutely fine, but it is within these sort of big woodland blocks. The issue with all large carnivores is social. You know, it's 10% biology and 90% sociology, politics and psychology. And from a social point of view, the lynx is undoubtedly easier than the wolf, even if it's harder from a biological point of view. And even saying that, it would still be the most complex reintroduction um, feasibility done yet far in Britain. Beavers and, and eagles were on par of that, although I suppose beavers don't really count because they turned up quietly already before any feasibility could be done. So it was a case of, right, here now, deal with it. But certainly with eagles, we have seen feasibility projects, which when they were first started in England, failed at the first hurdle when naturally attempted it in Norfolk. They were scared off by the pig farmers, but then was done much better on the Isle of Wight and really set the precedent for it. So I think the eagle projects are your closest sort of parameter to links when in terms of the people you're talking to, the risks associated with it and all that kind of thing. But we also have a very good baseline as to how not to links projects. The one uh, license that was applied for in 2019 by the um, inverted commas UK Links Trust, which is just a, a group of two people, um, a couple basically, who are conservation charlatans, to put it quite simply, and made a complete mess of all the social engagement 
um, did a very poor ecological impact assessment and it got rejected very quickly. But what they did to local community was completely turn them off from the idea of links reintroduction. So it the cars back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, and it, it does. It, it pushes back um, the idea of these things, if that's the kind of idea people have of it. What happened? Like, what was the m- crucial mistake that was made? Um, just fa- failure to engage with the local community. Okay. The thing you want when you're doing these kind of projects is trust, first and foremost. It's communities and local people being able to speak to you one-on-one and effectively get on with you. They may not necessarily have to agree with you on everything. You don't necessarily need a consensus where everyone's like, well, who? Yeah, we're all definitely happy to have links. Um, but as long as you've got a, a overall um, reception of trust in the local community, then that's the important thing. You know, some people might think you're a bit daft, but you know, at least they can get on with you. We're, we're getting it in even at the moment, Pete, with the Beaver Project. You know, we've had <laughs> a good few concerned comments, but um, yeah, I think just being open with people and absolutely, you know, answering their questions is really important, isn't it? Absolutely, people don't like the idea that things have been hidden from them, or that you know, there's sort of dodgy things going on behind the scenes. You know, a classic example of a done right uh, was the Pine Martin reinforcement in Mid Wales, um, and the chap they held on the ground there, really great bloke called Dave Bavin. Mm. When he did his first consultations, there was a guy at the back, local farmer, who apparently stood up. And was like, you know, if these martins come anywhere near my land, I'm going to shoot them and stormed out the room. And then two years later, when they've actually done the release project, you know, he's calling Dave up saying, um, I've got quad bikes on my land. Um, I'm worried they're going to scare the martins. Shall I get rid of them? Really? Yeah. That, that's the level of transformation. All because Dave basically integrated himself with the community, became sort of Dave the Martin man. You know, people could have a pint down the pub with him and just got that community trust going on board. And now the community are on the whole. Very proud of local pine martins, even though there are many people who are worried they're going to eat all the birds or eat all the chickens in the early days. Yeah. Um, so that's basically what you've got to try and do with it, basically, is build up that trust. And that's not what the people behind that Lynx Trust did. They basically went to the village halls, but said, we're right, you're uh, you're wrong, and you're going to like this, basically. And was very patronizing. So uh, that's where it all fell apart. Yeah, yeah. And um, speaking of pine martins, you know um, that our friend Elias discovered Pine Martin in yes. Kingston in London, yeah. um, which caused uh, uproar on Twitter with <laughs> certain people. Um, yeah. You know, this was definitely a release and it's terrible. And even the, I guess, official um, conservation bodies who were doing the official reintroduction projects were all condemning it. Um, hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, that Pine Martin could have, in theory, come from the new forest population because they're wide yeah. ranging, aren't they? Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, pine marts are an interesting one. There's been a lot of uh, mystery turn-ups all over the place. Um, so the new forest is the case in point. And going by the numbers at the survey that Forest Commission um, and Wild New Forest have been doing in the last couple of years, I mean, there's confirmed breeding now. So that's almost certainly a population that has just been sort of quite released um, for quite a long time now. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's been reports of um, pine martins in the new forest since the late 90s. There was a, an animal found as roadkill um, in 99, I think. Yeah, which was DNA identified as a Czechoslovakian animal. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. But all the DNA from dead pine martins found in the forest since then, including the, uh, a pine martin that's found as roadkill by Martin Noble, the chap who uh, basically looped me into Derek um, early on in my career. Um, he basically collects a lot of dead martins and he let me have one of them. Uh, and it's sitting stuffed in front of me right now. Um, so ah. I've got stuffed new forest matting on my desk. And all the DNA from these martins has been confirmed as being of Scottish origin. So all the pine martins... So what's, ha- what's happening there, do you think? Obviously, not naming... Things. I suspect what's happening is animals from Scotland, and there are a lot of them there. 
you know, it's, it's quite high density. I mean, you'll find pine martens will often um, crawl into people's roof spaces um, and license will be granted for people to go out and sort of collect them and uh, remove them from there. When I was volunteering at New Forest Wildlife Park, for example, there was a, a pine martin uh, that was one of a litter of a martin we found in a roof space and then we sort of taken in from that. Yeah. And I suspect you've basically got cases like this of pine martens find their way into people's buildings and whatnot and people will just sort of send them elsewhere, basically. Um, so, so someone is collecting them up in Scotland and delivering them to release in different places. Probably. That sounds, yeah. that sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, it's the only place I can imagine all these Scottish pine martens coming from because at the end of the day, they're very difficult to breed in captivity. Right. I mean, unlike wildcats, which, you know, you stick a pair in a pen and they'll quite happily have a litter of kittens and a litter of kittens next year. Pine martens, if you leave a male in with a female for too long, uh, i.e. more than a week or two, yeah, he will kill her. Right. Do a very gradual introduction, keeping them in separate pens and all the rest of it. So there's only three zoos at breeding pine martens in the UK, Rush Mountain Zoo, New Forest Wildlife Park and Wildwood. And those offspring are actually all going to uh, an approved uh, formal release led by Craig Shuttleworth in Snowdonia. So that's the only cat to bring me on pine martens going on, and there's not much of it. So I think the only source realistically you're going to have, given the DNA identification of these animals, is, yeah, it's going to be wild animals in Scotland, basically. But then the add-on point to that is that these animals will disperse very, very far. So when you consider that one of the uh, tagged animals released in mid-Wales ended up in Derbyshire, then you know Kingston from the New Forest isn't um, an impossible distance at all for an animal which is going to a new habitat and just dispersing and seeing where it can go. Yeah, and the Surrey Hills are a perfect habitat for pine martens, aren't they? Very far. Oh, yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, if, if, if it's going eastwards, I mean, you know, this where you've got the Weald um, and uh, the Bleen and all, all these sort of thick wooded habitats southeast England, it's absolutely fantastic for them. And the other place we're seeing road pine martens is Cornwall. So uh, it's ironic that ZSL camera traps seem very good at de- detecting pine martins because it's one of the Hogwarts mm. ones that got the Kingston one. Yes, yeah. And it's one of the ZSL uh, badge vaccination project cameras that got a pine martin on Penwith, so not far from Land's End, uh, literally on a clifftop, uh, very, very open, not what you'd imagine as being textbook martin habitat. But I suspect what's happened there is someone's been, again, releasing them maybe somewhere like Dartmoor or Bodmin Moor uh, or Exmoor, somewhere where it's sort of, you know, got a nice little woodland core, basically. Uh, and these things, again, are scattering. But as they go westwards, obviously, it's a peninsula. Um, so they're just going as far as they can. And as far as they can is all the way to sort of land's end, basically. Right. So there's been pine martin sightings from Penwith. Uh, there's been pine martin sightings in Boscastle in North Cornwall, from Gosmore, which is sort of central Cornwall. Bude as well, which is very north tip near the Devon border. Um, so, yeah, lots of martin sightings all over Cornwall. So yeah. I suspect a lot of these ones aren't necessarily different releases into that area they're dispersing martins but they've originated from deliberate releases on the quiet elsewhere yeah and why do you think people are like people were very concerned that oh london's not suitable for pine martins they shouldn't have released them there you know it's like actually coming from ireland where pine martins have made a massive recovery in the last kind of 20 years they're they've now reached you know dublin basically and they're in suburban gardens and and things and it's no big deal is Mm. it just that people are worried about the unknown or just have this fear of any predator newly emerging in a landscape well i think of that you know there is the element that if you're doing a reintroduction officially or unofficially i suppose you know you want to be putting the animal in the best possible habitat um yeah. to get the best possible chances um so i guess the degree that comes from that uh although as i say i don't think that london pine martin was released in london i think it traveled from elsewhere you know, namely mm. the forest and at the end of the day i completely support you know um 
reintroduction criticism if it is leveled fairly uh, from the animal welfare point of view. But in many cases, you know, species, you know, species that are very, very adaptable, you know, you don't necessarily need to worry too much once they start dispersed on their own. Uh, so yes, you want to sort of release animals into the best possible habitat. But what they do after that is under their own volition, basically. Yeah. But I would definitely say if you're releasing things, you definitely want to do that in the in the best given the best possible chances. So even if uh, there's a habitat type where species do okay in all they've been found in, you know, you really want to do it where the densities are going to be higher, basically, to give them that biggest possible base. Because when yeah. you're starting with reintroduction, you're basically starting with a founder population, which is very vulnerable to small scale effects. Uh, so you want to sort of mitigate those as, as best you can. Yeah. But yeah, if animals turn up on their own accord, then, you know, the animals will find a home and, and do very well in it. Going back to that pine martin on the cliff at Penwith, um, ostensibly you wouldn't release it there because, you know, you don't think of pine martins as being animals of open habitat. But, you know, there's actually new research coming from Europe um, and I think Ireland as well, which is shown to be a lot more generalist people give them credit for. And I think that's just down to a very widespread level of thinking where we focus so much on the habitat suitability of species as in specific habitat. We don't think about whether it's actually the structure which is more important. With pine martens, you know, it's about availability of food and it's about cover for den sites. So actually, if you've got lots of field voles in the coastal scrub, which you do over in these cliff tops, and you've got den sites in the cliffs and the rocks, then actually it's probably very good habitat. They'll crack on. It's, it's about structure, not habitat specialism. I mean, glowworms are the same. You know, you'll find glowworms in all kinds of habitats. Like, yes, you find lots of them in chalk downland because you get lots of snails in chalk. But you'll find them in heathland, you'll find them in uh, neutral grassland, you'll find them in forest rides, you'll find them in sand dunes. So when people worry about you know, the, the soil type and the uh, pH for different insect species, certainly for worms at least, I don't think they give a piss about it. What's important to them is a structure. It's about having a habitat that has got enough cover and humidity for snails when they're larvae uh, and enough short areas of sward or bare ground when they're adults. You know, it doesn't it don't give a fudge whether it's classified as chalk grassland or, or sandy heathland. Um, yeah, so we need yeah. to look far more um, objectively at structures of habitats rather than necessarily the habitat types themselves. Because again, I think we get overly drawn to that. Yeah, well, this is the classic example that Isabella Tree wrote about in Wilding of um, who knew that nightingales just needed our hedgerows not to be cut yeah. for 10 or 15 years. It's all, you know, the management in the books actually um, can be flipped on its head by just allowing nature to kind of do its own thing and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Right? absolutely. So. You um you joke, Pete, about um you just deal with the uncontentious, uncontroversial yeah. species. So your main focus at the moment is glowworms and harvest mice, yes. is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So literally species where I think you'd be really quite hard given to make a, a farmer um <laughs> you know unwilling to have a species there. I think they might ask if it's really protected and whether they might limit him from doing stuff with his land. But apart from that, yeah, there's 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 not much not to love basically about them. Yeah. And you've worked with us at Ealing Wildlife Group on harvest mice. Am I right in saying it's some of the biggest harvest mouse releases you've done in Ealing? Uh, it is, yeah. Um, so, I mean, just the one release we did this year is 300, well, I think it's 298 exactly in one yeah. go. Um, and that's yeah. certainly the biggest release I've done. And an urban rewilding project as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. what really made it special that day um, was just that the turnout you got, your volunteers, you know, I think it was like, what, 28 people um, who all rocked yeah. up to basically come and take a, a release pen each and carry it down into the, um, into the super habitat and then sort of, you know, open up the pens to let the harvest mice go if they wanted to. Um, but most harvest mice seem to want to get out of their pens pretty quick. And it's just the joy that brings people and that sense of connection and that we've done something with meaning. 
uh, is exactly where we need to be going. And yeah, you know, well done for you know getting it all sorted and, and building that community up because exactly what's needed. Um, and a community that is so diverse as well. You know, I've got so used to delivering talks to village halls full of people over the age of 65. I don't know if you watched Detectorists. There's a brilliant scene where this sort of, uh, no. muse student who's really keen on getting into archaeology turns up to the Detectorist sort of uh, meeting. She just sort of turns up with a half a dozen oldies in the room, not sure what's going on. Uh, and that's, I think, the theme for a lot of teenagers who want to get into nature, but just find the local nature groups are a very set demographic. So to see, yeah. you know, people of all ages and all backgrounds coming out there to help harvest mice was just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. No, we're, yeah, we're working on that, trying to reach kind of communities that aren't traditionally very engaged or don't have like close access to kind of green spaces mm. and things. So it's definitely a focus for us in Ealing mm. to try and increase kind of access to nature for different communities. Yeah. 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 And do you know what? The Harvest Mice has been the most engaging and best and most successful, I guess, yeah. project we've done in terms of community engagement because they're a cute mammal, yeah. <laughs> you know, and everyone loves a cute mammal. Yeah. I think um, glowworms are probably, you know, a unique insect to sell because people are like fascinated to see yeah. them glowing, yeah. but maybe harder to sell a, a little brown beetle that doesn't glow. Yeah. <laughs> Would you yeah. think? And I, I think that's part of the reason we went into the project because there is both effectively a biological and a, and a social rationale for doing the glowing project. Um, the yeah. biological one is they are a, a species which does now have an accountable decline, at least in Southeast England. Um, so a study that came out a couple yeah. of years ago, which basically backed up a lot of anecdotal reports over the last few decades about glowworms declining. Um, and that they are a species which does not disperse very well at all. Basically, you know, if you don't have glowworms immediately next door or connected to a new habitat or habitat where they've gone extinct from, then they won't come back. Yeah. And John Tyler. So they fragmentation. Absolutely, then. yeah. John Tyler, who is the UK glowworm guru, basically, he's been really helpful on this project. And he's literally written the book, The Glowworm, which came out about 20 years ago now. And in that book, he again says that we need to investigate, you know, releasing uh, glowworms on sites where they've disappeared because they won't get there on their own naturally. Um, so there is that biological rationale, which should basically, you know, hopefully get the approval of the conservation scientists. But, you know, you could say that for a lot of species, which are, you know, maybe, you know, less than they used to be and don't disperse well but are still relatively widespread. You know, glowworms aren't actually massively, uh, say, locally extinct or anything. They're actually pretty widespread throughout the country, more so in the southern half. But, you know, it's a pretty wide distribution. Uh, I mean, people say you want to have glowworms. I will always say, please check your site, because if it's suitable habitat, they might be there already and you've just not seen them. So do, do check and make sure beforehand. But from a social point of view, they are one of the most culturally important insects alongside butterflies. You know, they're one of the few insects that have been talked about since civilization began, when you get these ancient Babylonian and Roman allusions to them being associated with the other world, uh, with fertility, with hope, with rebirth, with death, all sorts. Uh, because that light and the dark is such a powerful image. Mm. And what we wanted to use it for was to symbolize a light in the darkness of biodiversity loss and climate breakdown and everything else that's going on terribly in the world right now to show that there is hope, the hope at the end of Pandora's box. And that these glowworms can light the way once again for a wilder countryside. Yeah. It's just incredibly, really powerful imagery. And when we started in the project, we actually were collecting our first glowworms just in, in the first stage of the lockdown easing in, in May 2020, uh, June 2020 even. Um, and at that horrible, horrible time, it really was just a, a message of hope to get us through. 
Yeah. Have you nailed the technique now? Are you churning out glowworms? Yeah, breeding wise, it's going pretty well. I mean, all credit due, to be honest, to uh, Rene Spearling, who is a private breeder in Germany. He's got a brilliant YouTube channel. I think it's called Glowworms and Peppers or something like that. Um, he's a very, very, very funny guy. He's got a very distinct style. Uh, if you've ever seen What We Do in the Shadows, uh, the film, but the TV series is also brilliant. Um, he reminds me a lot of Taika Waititi's character and that. But he's basically pioneered this technique over the last 14 years. And when we started breeding, they were a species which everyone just said can't be done. They're too difficult. And people have done it before, but on a relatively small scale, for a bit of observation, study, that kind of thing. So we tried some methods that were recommended to us, but the humidity wasn't high enough. So I got a lot of larvae dying by drying out. Then I found Rennie's method, which involved using a cellulose sponge cloth, which kept the humidity nice and tight all the time. But actually, what then happened was they started drowning in pools of water. And I mm. contacted Rennie really quickly and was like, Rennie, I've tried your method, they're all drowning. And he was like, ah, yes, I, this is a new method that I've just tried this year to make it easier, which involves taking out the layer of cocoa fiber, which gets very messy, makes it hard to monitor them. But actually, I found that takes out the humidity gradient and that creates the pools of water and then they drown. So I've gone back to my old method. So I suggest you do the same thing. Uh, so I did. Okay. And yeah, so I was in much higher since then. And I've upped the numbers of the current broods. So I've done sort of basically two breeding cycles now, if you like. And survival is even higher than the winter before, which is much higher than the winter before that. Uh, and that's basically down to me uh, reducing the overcrowding a bit. So um, basically having smaller groups of glowworm per tub. Uh, it does mean I'm pretty much filling out the table in my room um, with about 21 takeaway tubs of glowworms. Um, so it's about <laughs> probably about 350 by now. But it is mean the survival is higher uh, and it should have even more to breed from next year. And I've also um, got another couple of collections that have joined uh, the program on breeding loan. Um, so Wildwood Escots, which is Wildwood Trust's um, second park in Devon, uh, they've got 140 larvae. Uh, and I gave 100 larvae to Manchester Museum, um, who've been doing lots of pioneering work breeding amphibian species, rare and locally extinct amphibian species for quite a long time, uh, and now trying to hand it invertebrates. And they're helping expand the capacity, basically. So okay. we'll, and we did our first releases in 2021. I was going to ask, have you released them yet? Yeah. We have. Yeah. Yeah. So we had enough to release uh, 569 larvae in 2021. And then we released 550 larvae last year at our trial release site. Um, and then we're going to do top-ups of around 250, 300 larvae uh, for the next two summers at that same release site. So the reason doing four right. releases, two big ones and two slightly smaller ones, is because the glowworm has like a two-year life cycle. If you just went with one release, even if it was successful, you would have glowworms one year and then glowing that one year and then glowworms glowing uh, two years after that and so on. Uh, okay, so it'd be like biennial plants. You have to plant them twice in, exactly. twice in a row. Exactly. Yeah. So you effectively have two populations at the same site. Okay. And then the booster is, well, as I say, it's a booster basically to sort of make up any shortfalls you might have had uh, and provide extra genetic diversity as well. And this coming summer, summer 2023, will be the first time we'll know if they've um, established a breeding. Uh, the larvae are quite difficult to monitor. Uh, I did put some reptile mats out um, this autumn. Um, I haven't found any larvae under the mats yet. But they can be quite tricky to get under there. Do they like to eat like reptiles under under those mats? Is it? Um, that's what you normally survey for. Uh, only field voles so far. Um, but if you start finding slow worms, uh, that's a good sign because slow worms tend to be where you get glow worms as well because they're both going for the same food sources right. to cover. Um, but certainly lots of snails under the mats. So you know that's you know good to see from the food point of view. But next summer will be the first time we'll see any glowing adults if uh, the first brood released in 2020. Uh, if any have succeeded through to adulthood. So I'm going to be biting my nails uh, until any glowworms are seen glowing next year. 
Yeah, fingers crossed. Absolutely. Uh, but if it doesn't work out, we'll think, okay, what could we have done differently? And we'll try a different site with different uh, conditions because that's what it yeah. is. It's a learning curve. No one's done this formally. Um, people have you know, done a bit of breeding. Um, there have been the old gloam colonies that appeared out of nowhere. So people think people have released gloams there, whether they bred them or directly moved them from one wild site to another, people don't know. But no one's you know, done a sort of full uh, right up as you go along, uh, captive breeding uh, and then reintroducing um, project for the species. So we probably will get more things wrong. You know, we got things wrong with captive breeding initially, um, but we corrected those things. Yeah. We'll probably get things wrong with the release side of things, but we'll correct them. And it's the exact yeah. same thing in the water voles. When Derek first started, they were breeding hundreds, only for hundreds to die because they didn't know what the right social grouping was, what the right habitat enclosure conditions were. But the situation with the species was so dire that they kept trying and trying until they got it right. And we now produce, you know, up to a thousand water voles a year. Uh, for release all over the country with populations that have established very successfully. So the other big thing is not being afraid of failure. You know, it's very easy to be hard on yourself, but when you're dealing with unknowns, that's par for the course. Just don't make the same mistake twice. And yeah. I think that is what limits a lot of conservation bodies um, is this fear of failure, this overcaution. There was uh, one wildlife NGO who I'm not going to identify and I wanted just to collect some glow larvae from to use, uh, glow adults, I'm sorry. Um, to use as donor population uh, for the cats project not to breed from not to release onto the site or anything like that um, you know, just to get some donors and you know the question went to a board who had all these different questions about this and that and the other a lot of which I had to answer I don't know to because we haven't tried it with glowworms yet we don't know what's going to happen and they mm. went well I'm very sorry we you know we, we don't want to be involved at this stage due to the unknowns of it but if things work out, do please get in touch, you know, <laughs> as soon as it works. Yeah, we don't want the risk, but we do want the glory. Is that it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, Yeah, I'm not going to say too much, but our beaver application is trundling along very slowly. And there's a lot of risk aversion and caution. And I get it in an urban landscape, mm. um, bringing beavers back to Ealing. Hopefully it's going to happen next year. Mm. But yeah, the, the caution around these things is sometimes quite frustrating yeah um, yeah to see the least I'm, I'm conscious of time and i do want to move on to um maybe a semi-controversial reintroduction project which you're um involved with in the very early stages which is releasing native wildcats yes. in devon tell us about that yes well this project um i've actually been involved in uh, for quite a long time it's one of the very first tasks when i started working for derek in 2018 basically tidy up and get out a sort of potential strategy for uh, wildcats in england you know basically look at the history what's been done reintroduction wise the species before and how a project could potentially work. And you know, we had some a lot of, sort of early discussions with Vincent Wildlife Trust and Durrell, who at the same time were uh, looking possibly to do whales, um, uh, doing releasing, releasing wildcats and whales. And then Vincent Wildlife Trust produced a preliminary feasibility for the whole of the UK to identify the best areas to do so. And they identified uh, whales and southwest of England, uh, specifically Devon, as being the best places to start. So... Added to the knowledge that you know we'd accumulated in our little um, strategy for England, you know we you know got talking with uh, Devon Wildlife Trust, um, and you know we are now very happy to say that you know uh, they are recruiting for a, a wildcat officer who will basically be leading um, eighteen months of feasibility work uh, to investigate wildcats really induction in Devon. I've already started some of the ecological feasibility, so I've been working with a PhD student uh, at Exeter University um, who's been looking at feasibility for whales and southwest england uh, although his focus has been on whales but i basically used his method of feral cat survey um, in devon and cornwall uh, and he did some surveys there as well so we have an idea of what the feral cat situation is like and 
We also have a breeding center, uh, which we're expanding this year. We've already got six breeding pens. We're building four new pens this year as well, specifically for breeding wildcats for wild release. So over the next 18 months, what we'll be doing in partnership with Devon Wildlife Trust, uh, we'll be supporting some of the ecological feasibility work. Uh, they'll be expanding on in Devon. Uh, whilst the Devon Wildlife Trust also do a lot of social feasibility work and engagement, both in informing people, you know, what wildcats are and what likely effects may or may not be. Because, you know, as we've discussed already with carnivores, that's the most crucial thing. Um, and we will be, you know, ramping up our breeding, basically, you know, working on uh, what release techniques we could use, identifying release sites. And we'll be doing a lot of that in tandem, actually, with uh, the uh, Welsh project, where we're trying to sort of, you know, utilize uh, the same methods as much as possible. Um, but the crucial yeah. thing is, is that if we get to the end of this 18 months and the people of Devon say, no, we don't want wildcats, we won't release wildcats. Or if they say yes, but we actually find ecologically, um, we just don't have the capability of um, habitat, of uh, prey bases. If domestic cat densities are just too high, then we'll say no. You know, this is a, a feasibility stage where, where we're investigating whether it can be done or not. But if these cases are laid clear that, you know, people are happy to have this animal back, if there are suitable habitats um, and prey bases and places where uh, cats won't be as big a problem, then, you know, it could be a very exciting introduction. Yeah, absolutely. And ultimately of wildcats, you know, if we don't start looking at their introduction in England and Wales, then it's a very difficult place for the future of the species in Britain. Because the situation in Scotland is that this is an animal which is already functionally extinct in Scotland and therefore the UK as a whole. And in Scotland, the hybrids uh, swarm there is completely unique in Europe. A lot of British conservationists, and certainly I did at the beginning, just assume that wildcat reintroduction is pointless because they'll breed a domestic cat, something in Scotland, and that'll be the end of it. Well, if you go to yeah. Europe, you know, hybridization, it happens, but it's not a given thing. You know, um, the overall hybrid rate in Europe is 10% of the population. And in some places like Germany, it's as low as 3.5%. And it's all dependent on the health of that population and the suitability of habitat. And where you've got um, good habitat and this animal, a bit like a lot of research kind of wolves and pine martens, is a lot more generalist than we used to think. It does need, you know, wooden blocks to breed in. But if prey bases are high, those wooden blocks don't need to be particularly big uh, and able to traverse uh, open areas. Well, they need the open areas to hunt the rabbits and, and small mammals they like to eat. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the home range of a female wildcat in Germany, where you get these very low hybrid rates in, you know, wet wooden habitat in countryside, which is climatically and ecologically quite similar to a lot of southern England, their home range average size is about sort of three kilometers square. Um, in some cases, it can be low as, you know, 0.5 kilometers square, 0.3 kilometers right. square. Whereas if you go to Scotland, average home range, you're looking at about 30 kilometers square. It's a tenfold wow. difference because... Scotland is the edge of the species range. You don't find the, the animal in Scandinavia. They do terribly in winter when they lose a, a further body weight. Cause, I mean, a lot of their prey is under the snow. Um, so yeah. you've got an animal which is probably already living in suboptimal habitat. It had much bigger home ranges uh, and therefore has got to get what it's given, basically. And in the UK, this is an animal that was wiped to extinction in the southeast first in the Middle Ages, uh, wiped out from the southwest in the 18th century in Wales and the north of England in the 19th century. Uh, and would have gone extinct from Scotland as well, were it not for the First World War, uh, sending the gamekeepers to the front lines and then not coming home again. So you had this very small core of wildcats reclaiming their range eastwards from the west coast of Scotland. But that was so depleted and just recolonizing that really quite poor quality habitat. The, you know, as soon as the Forest Commission springs up in 1919 and starts 
um, springing up these plantations, which initially are great because the initial boom of scrub is great for small animals, but then gets very, very shit once the trees grow up and overshade it all and forces animals down into the crofts, which have lots of free-roaming cats um, at the time. That's all they've got. And that's where you get this unique hybrid swarm. And once you have hybrids in place, which behave more like wildcats, and you know, live more like wildcats, kind of same kind of habitats they do. It's very difficult to get rid of that. Uh, wildcats yeah. will chase out domestic cats on the whole. They will avoid buildings and farmsteads where domestic cats tend to keep themselves themselves. And even though those cats go wandering in woodlands, in places where you find wildcats in Europe, they tend to stick away as soon as the cats are about, the wildcats are about. So actually the chance of them to come across each other and mate, if you've got good habitat and a suitable wildcat population, is actually relatively little. Um, and you will get occasional hybrids, and you certainly get hybrids more often when you get wildcats dispersed into new habitat, which other wildcats haven't found yet. Um, but if there's a yeah. good enough population to continually be pumping out animals, which overwhelm the hybridization, as long as that hybrid's staying at a low level, they can function as a species pretty well. So if you've got habitats which are much more similar to continental Europe, where they're doing very, very well, we've got to give it a go. We've got to look into it. Otherwise, you lose a species in England and Wales, in, in the UK, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Probably the most annoying um, question I'm going to ask now, which you've been asked countless times before, but a lot of people say it when you talk about reintroductions. What's the point? Why are you doing it? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's something that I remember doing a stakeholder meeting recently, and there was a farmer there who just said, what's the point in doing it all? The the landscape's fine as it is. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's so many different things you sort of come back to on that. There are so many species where, of course, you've got the ecological argument, Although I do think that beavers have really made uh, a hard job for everything else because beavers do so much in terms of restoring habitat yeah. and species and services for people as well. Uh, suddenly when you say, right, what can a wildcat do? It's like, you know, can you build a shed? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> Is it going to prevent flooding? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, like a wildcat, you know, uh, it's a predator, but we've already got quite a few predators of field voles and rabbits and things. It might have an interesting effect on grey squirrels because grey squirrels don't climb trees as well as reds do. But yeah. we can't say for certain if it will because there isn't really anywhere in the native range where, where grey squirrels and wildcats overlap. Um, so that's completely speculative. So it really comes down to the nux of it, which is this is a species we eradicated. It is our right to bring it back. And yeah. there still seems this thing conservation where people are very happy to play God with habitat and manage and mollycoddle as much as possible there. When it comes to species, or bringing back the species as well, which should be in those habitats, it's just seen as, oh, no, 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 that's, that's too much. No, it's terrible. Can't do that. Uh, and that's partly down to yeah. the fact that a lot of the early reintroductions failed, but unfortunately that's become stuck in the literature. So a lot of people are still working on 1970s baselines of, or 1980s baselines of reintroductions don't really work, rather than 2020 baselines, yeah. which is actually, there's a lot more that do if you do them well. Uh, and they are complex and they, they can be complicated, but as long as you plow through, you can still make a job of them. But a lot of that is still, yeah, this sort of idea of sort of pointlessness of this idea of humans putting things back is plastic. But no, you know, it's, it's exactly the same rationale for restoring habitats. And just as there are conservationists who are about, you know, restoring habitats, my MO is about restoring species, which I see as a, as, a, as a very rightful thing to do, um, especially if these species can actually uh, fit quite well into the landscapes of today. Uh, and it was direct persecution that wiped them out. Um, you know, things like pine martins and eagles are much more cost effective. You'll often hear birders complain about what's the point of these vanity projects of releasing things like eagles and storks because, you know, they're they're not endangered, that kind of thing. You know, then we should be focusing our attention on the turtle dove or the corn bunting or the lesser spotted woodpecker. Uh, it's a waste mm. of money spending it all on eagles. But actually, you know, yes, you put the initial investment for the reintroduction for eagles, but once they're there, 
it's pretty cost effective because they slot in absolutely fine because the habitat and food is already there. It's the fact we're not killing them anymore, which is making a difference. But if you want to bring back turtle doves or lesser spot woodpeckers, you're actually going to have to put in a lot of investment into mollycoddling, intensive habitat and intensive species care, basically, ICUing uh, species reintroductions in relatively small areas. Yeah. Um, because the landscape is different. You know, it's, it's how we treat the land, which is why they are nearly extinct. And the only way you're going to get them yeah. back on a widespread scale um, is through land reform, is for political change, the farming system, all that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, they're absolutely cost-effective wins for a lot of these different species. So, yeah, there are the utilitarian arguments about species in their own right thing. There's the ethical argument, which I think, is, for me, is the strongest, which is, you know, it is a right to put them back if we have wiped them out. But, of course, a lot of people doesn't shine yeah. through. But then there is just the response that you've seen, uh, we've seen with the Harvest House project, and I'm starting to see the Glowen project, uh, and people have seen with the Stork project and NEP, which is, just brings joy and wonder and that connection to nature back into ordinary people's lives. Totally, yeah. So pent up in our little bubbles about what's right and wrong, which you know, my friends and family on the outside don't give two shits about, basically. Um, but reintroductions um, are something people can get behind, because humanity is built on stories our civilization is a story it's how we frame our life is for a story that's why we get engaged in shows and books and movies because stories are filters for how we process our reality and when we're dead that's all we're going to be a story and i'm a scientist you know i'm about doing things you know with that scientific rigor and scientific training but the justification for a lot of these things is because they are stories and the reintroduction is a story about how you relate to our natural world. Mm. And if that's what we need to do to get people behind it to save it, then so be it. So do them with good scientific rigor, but absolutely look into them because you can never underestimate a story. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's great, Pete. I can't believe we got through the entire podcast and you haven't mentioned Jurassic Park. Uh, well, you know, uh, life finds a way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that film is just the most perfect episode <laughs> of our relationship with science and nature, though. Oh, it's just brilliant. And then the sequels trashed it. I know. Well, oh, awesome, awesome. good moments. <laughs> we'll have to yeah, they mostly trashed it. I think so. Yeah. Well, I've a lot of rights on that one. Yeah. I think we'd have to do a whole other podcast about dissect, dissecting Jurassic Park, what it means. All right. Well, look. Um, what's next? Is the Wildcat thing the the big project? Is there anything else kind of um exciting in there in the pipeline? There are some things which I probably can't really tell you right now. <laughs> I look forward to when I can. No worries. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You can tell me when we start. Um, <laughs> otherwise, um. TikTok's going all right. Um, I've, I was going to say, your TikTok is great, yeah, bringing humour to natural history. Yeah, um, I mean, it's big, an odd thing it's never expected to do, but I think it just ties into a lot of what I'm saying about getting the not-us into nature. Well, it's storytelling, isn't it? It is, it is exactly. And I think, you know, that that's where kind of that brief yeah. moment I mentioned earlier when I was 13 when I wanted to be an actor to be Doctor Who, I think that's where I just allow my creative outlet to throw, uh, flow a little bit is uh, out with my TikTok um that the chaotic erotic content what's your handle on there uh pete cooper wildlife uh at pete cooper wildlife brilliant and is that on other um social media as well twitter and instagram uh on instagram as well yep and twitter it is uh at pete mr cooper cool all right well go and have a look at that listeners because um pete does put up some amazing content and isn't shy of a good old debate about rewilding and is doing lots of exciting things so i think pete we could talk for another two hours but we better end it there <laughs> yeah no problem yeah thanks a million for coming and um i hope to see you soon yeah, yeah totally totally come down to london soon Pine
Absolutely. Oh, I didn't tell you, actually, we got uh, 22 harvest mouse nests in our survey this winter. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, up on six from last year. So hopefully next next year we're planning is the third year of releases and then we're going to kind of let them fend for themselves and see what happens. Yeah, good plan, good plan. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Thanks, nice one. Thanks for all your help on that. Oh, not a problem. It's just lovely to hear when, you know, you actually an establishment that begins to occur. Yeah. Obviously, we want to see the long-term stuff, but, you know, that that's the first step ticked and that's just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, um, we'll be moving from reintroducing Britain's smallest rodent to Britain's largest rodent in 2023. Yeah, didn't even work your way up like vice squirrels, you know, jumping yeah. straight into it. We're, we're <laughs> jumping to beavers, and then it, then it's going to be water voles jumping back down the ladder. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for all your help and advice, and a really enjoyable um, talking That's to you today. Yeah, all right, thanks, great. thank you. Good luck. Thank you very much. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast with myself, Sean McCormick, produced and edited by Thomas Dinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating and all that usual business. And if you would like to sponsor the costs a little bit, which are self-funded, you can buy me a coffee in the link in the description. Thanks. Bye.